Hey, Bard listeners. If you live in New York City and love the public library, we need your help. This past fall, our public libraries sustained deep mid-year cuts that forced an end of seven-day service and reduction of our materials and programs. We're now facing more budget cuts for the coming fiscal year. Libraries across the city stand to lose $58.3 million in funding. If these cuts are not reversed, we may have to reduce materials and programming yet again, including further reductions to our days of service. As many as half of all New York City libraries would be open only five days a week. The good news is you can help. Send a letter to city leaders telling them that you support the library. It's easy. It only takes 30 seconds and you can do it now. If you live in Brooklyn, go to BKLYNlibrary.org slash standup, all one word, to fill out the form. If you live in any of the other boroughs, you can send a letter on behalf of Queens Public Library or New York Public Library. Learn how at investinlibraries.org. Thank you so much for your support. Krissa, do you remember the first Zoom work meeting you had? Well, not specifically which meeting, but I do remember that I had not heard of Zoom, you know, in March of 2020, and then it became, you know, a verb, right? That's really funny. I mean, I think my first Zoom work meeting was probably for the podcast. Yeah, I hadn't heard of it before that either. Um, And actually, I think we should let listeners in on a secret. Uh, We're still heavy on the zoom for this podcast (laughs) we're still recording virtually i don't even remember what it's like to record a podcast in person in person i know it was a big adjustment for many of us to transition everything online but for many more just accessing the internet was the biggest hurdle even in a bustling place like new york city Right. So a state report that was conducted before the pandemic in 2019 found that 16% of households in New York City lacked access to high-speed internet. And with schools shifting online during the pandemic, a Pew Research Center study in 2021 found that about a quarter of students from lower-income families had to use public Wi-Fi to complete assignments or attend class. And finding public Wi-Fi that's reliable and free isn't easy. During the pandemic, libraries across the country were some of the first institutions to make their Wi-Fi available outside of their buildings. The Peter White Public Library in Marquette repositioned their routers in order to provide Wi-Fi access in the parking lot. You can now connect to the Loveland Public Library's Wi-Fi while in the parking lot. Free Wi-Fi access. It's available in all parking lots across their 25 library branches. Those were clips from news reports on ABC 10 News, CBS Denver, and KTNV Las Vegas. And internet access is one of the most important resources that libraries provide to their patrons. But as little as 25 years ago, connecting libraries to the World Wide Web was revolutionary. Now, especially as we are acknowledging the two-year anniversary of the start of a pandemic, We truly cannot imagine the library without the internet. Today, libraries and the World Wide Web, a look back at the beginnings of publicly accessible internet. I'm Adra Aduse. And I'm Krissa Corbett-Kavoris. You're listening to Borrowed, stories that start at the library. Okay. So we could not resist playing the sound of dial-up internet, which, depending on how old you are, might bring you back in time to 1997, which was 25 years ago. 
At BPL, we were celebrating our 100th anniversary, and in honor of that, Central Library finally got rid of its card catalogs and welcomed the World Wide Web. When I started at Central Library, the, the main lobby was filled with these humongous wooden card catalogs. Uh, nothing had been uh, put online or digitized yet. This is Donald Kaplan, who was Director of Marketing and Communications at Brooklyn Public Library in the 1990s. When we spoke to him a couple of months ago, he talked about that day when Central Library got rid of its card catalogs. I actually pitched an idea to, to retain them and use them as places where the computers could go into, but that was overruled and probably wisely. Okay, I do think it would be pretty hilarious to have computer terminals inside the big wooden card catalogs. And if you think about it, it's a pretty smart marketing idea. Many people in the 90s wouldn't be interacting with computers or the internet on a daily basis. So putting the computers inside the old card catalogs is sending a message. This is the same thing. Use me to search for books and information. Hmm. I mean, maybe we can bring the idea back for our 125th anniversary. (laughs) First, you'd have to find some of those old card (laughs) catalogs. They're pretty expensive on eBay. That's true. We should say that there were computers at the library in the late 80s and early 90s, but only for staff. We found an article published in the Canarsie Courier in 1988 about Jamaica Bay Library going, quote, online when it came to patrons checking out books. The article announced the end of a, quote, antiquated system based on several million slips of paper to a, quote, high-tech computerized circulation system. So instead of stamping the checkout card in the back of a library book, librarians used a light pen to scan the book's barcode and record the name of the patron, the book, and the due date electronically. And because the record went to BPL's central database, for the first time, librarians were able to tell if a patron owed fines or had overdue books at a different branch that would prevent them from checking out a new book. And of course, as of 2021, we no longer have fines at BPL. But at the time, this was a huge advancement. Not only could we track patrons' books from branch to branch, but we could also help them find any book across all of our branches. So we're going to put a link to that article in our show notes page so that you can see what a light pen is. It wasn't until 1996 that BPL made computers available for patrons to use. And that was thanks to a grant from Bill Gates, the co-founder of Microsoft and at the time, the richest man in the world. So it was a bit of a whirlwind when he came to Brooklyn in 1996 to announce the start of his library's online program. We have some staff still at BPL who were there when Gates came to visit, and they remember the flurry of activity surrounding the announcement. One of our librarians, Norman Erickson, remembers being asked to find children to sit at the computers for the press conference, and then scrambling to fill the shelves with books so that everything would look perfect for the pictures. The library's online program was really monumental for the city. According to a press release, Brooklyn received $2 million of the total $10 million Gates put into the effort. The program helped us install machines and internet access in several Brooklyn Library branches. Other urban centers like San Francisco, Chicago, Boston, Pittsburgh, and St. Louis, as well as rural communities in Arkansas, Oklahoma, Washington State, Nebraska, and more, also got funds from the same program. This program marked the first time that many public libraries had access to the internet. 
Here's Gates in an interview with the Financial Times in 1997, where he talked about how important he thought the Internet would be to future generations. Certainly the Internet is very much at the beginning of what it can achieve. I mean, we don't have wireless devices. We don't have these tablet devices. Most homes, if they're connected at all, are using a phone dial-up, which is a little bit slow. And, and so, you know, we haven't seen anything yet. You know, people aren't incorporating it into their lifestyle, but they will. Pretty prescient of Mr. Gates, though, to be fair, he did have a lot of money at stake on the Internet being a raging success. But for most people back in the late 90s, the Internet was just a place to play stick figure games and chat. Oh, the hours we used to spend on Instant Messenger. I still remember my first screen name. But, you know, what we think of as the internet today, typing something into a search box and getting millions of results instantly, that didn't really exist. My whole job is to help manage patrons' digital interactions with their library. But that would have been a completely futuristic idea in the late 90s. Here's Donald Kaplan again, head of BPL's marketing team at the time. There was a decision made that websites were happening and BPL needed one, there was some conflict as to who would actually take the helm of developing a website. Would it be uh, a marketing division or would it be a technology people? Uh, not only did we start the BPL website, but we were responsible for developing the website for the Borough of Brooklyn and we worked with uh, Borough Hall to do that. We maintained lists of websites because this was pre-Google, pre-search engine days. So you, there were printed books of websites. And we were laughing at that. You know, by the time it came into print, things were gone. That last voice was Norman Erickson, a librarian who still works at BPL Central Branch. He also remembered the excitement that the public computers created and mentioned that staff had to be hired specifically to manage the sign-up system for computer use. And it's worth noting, BPL's connection to the World Wide Web was pretty unusual for public libraries at the time. Only 28% of libraries had access to the internet in 1996. But then just six years later, in 2002, 95% of libraries had internet. Now, of course, the internet is essential to everyone. That's why in 2020, when libraries were shutting down at the start of the pandemic and with generous donations from many funders, BPL started a program to extend the reach of public Wi-Fi outside of our buildings and even down the block. That program is called Brooklyn Reach. Here's Raul Jackman, the manager of technology services at BPL. I think there was a need for a need to provide access to people in the community, right? Internet access. It started with just 13 branches actually in the oh. beginning, and um, as a as a test, and it grew from that to 51 branches when it was all said and done. Raul was in charge of the team that physically installed the tech in each of the branches to boost our Wi-Fi signal. This was in the spring of 2020 the beginning of the pandemic for us in Brooklyn, when even going outside seemed risky. We were meeting these strange men to do surveys at the building, right, to go up on the roofs of these buildings when everything is locked down. You know, so it was it was a little, you know, unnerving. But um, your best hope is that many people get to use it, right? That's kind of how I looked at it. You know, hopefully that a lot of folks get to use it that really needed to use it. And, um, you know, just put it to good use. And... People are using it. Since Brooklyn Reach started up in earnest, there have been between 18 and 24,000 Wi-Fi sessions on our Reach network every month. 
there is another cool project that we just launched, the Techmobile. It's exactly like a bookmobile, you know, a van with library books patrons can check out, except it's just for tech. The idea is that the Techmobile will drive to harder to reach neighborhoods and broadcast a Wi-Fi signal that anyone can tap into. There will also be laptops to use and other tech equipment like kits for podcasting. We're modifying the van and hope to start taking it out on the streets soon, because the truth is that New York City has a stark digital divide. As we mentioned earlier in the episode, there are many in the city who cannot get reliable high-speed internet at home. We talked to one person who's part of an organization seeking to lessen the digital divide, Jeremy Nay, executive director of a nonprofit called No One Left Offline. As a incredibly, you know, well-developed and, and hustling and bustling city, we would really expect there to be much better connectivity than we see in, in certain parts of uh, the city. A lot of the, you know, NYCHA housing buildings have have really struggled to connect uh, to the internet. I think the the second piece that we also see in in the city is sort of the you know disparate uh, costs that we see for actually accessing internet. So you know you can maybe be expected to pay really high internet access bills. No one left offline or NOLO began in San Francisco at the start of the pandemic when a lot of us started to take notice of internet access inequality. Right. And that's something that we saw here in Brooklyn, too, and in particular within our adult basic education programs. Jeremy, who's based in Brooklyn and is a former volunteer at the library, outlined a problem that instructors were seeing when adult education had to go online. Many of the students going through this program were straight A students three out of every four weeks of the month. And then for some reason in that you know final fourth week, Uh, basically started failing their courses and and kind of couldn't really understand why. They found out that uh, the vast majority of them were using their cell phones as hotspots. And in that final week, their cell phone plans were running out of data. So in the fall of 2021, NOLA partnered with VPL to provide a year's worth of quality and reliable internet connectivity to 90 registered adult learners in various adult basic education programs. The initiative was a collaboration with Devices for Students, a nonprofit that provided hotspots to participants. Because, as Jeremy describes it, the digital divide is about more than just providing one lane of access to the internet. It has to be a multi-pronged approach. We also talked to Nicholas Simon, a literacy advisor at the New Lots Learning Center, who spoke of a shift in students' needs within the last 10 years when it comes to mitigating that digital divide here in Brooklyn. When I first started, you know, nobody had internet access, right? or, or internet access was much limited. You know, we only had four computers for the whole, <laughs> uh, for the whole program at, at this learning center. So um, now we have 35 and they're, and they're in constant use. Nicholas also noted that many of his students already have access to the internet at home, though they're probably paying more than they can afford for it. So the cost of internet is an access issue, but also the devices. He said during the pandemic, some of his students who had internet access still had to borrow their kids' laptops, which they likely got from their public school, in order to attend those basic education classes. So for Nicholas, he saw adult learners checking out the program's free Chromebooks at a faster rate than they were checking out the Wi-Fi hotspots. 
The pandemic has certainly ushered in new ways of thinking about solutions to internet inequality, and it got us thinking about what's next in terms of making the internet more accessible to our patrons. As we've explored in this episode, an important part of access in all of this is reliability. When it comes to the content on the internet, the actual information that libraries help patrons access, we can describe it as the longevity or stability of the internet. Today's internet is not your grandma's internet or your great grandma's internet. I'd like to give a shout out to Brian at Clinton Hill for taking me on a trip down memory lane. You know, we started talking about what the early internet was like, and we just kept going back and forth, you know, LiveJournal, MySpace, Friendster, GeoCities, Dancing Hamsters. I mean, if you don't know what this stuff is, you should definitely try to check it out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and you know, when you mention LiveJournal and MySpace, I, I think about how the earliest social networks on the web in the early aughts were, you know, people's blogs, they would have these right-hand sidebars where they would link to, you know, 15 or 20 other blogs that they followed. And, you know, a lot of those blogs are gone now because... We like to think that content on the internet lasts forever, but it's actually quite ephemeral. Aesthetics of the mid to late 90s and early aughts are on trend right now, but if you really want to see what things look like at the dawn of the internet, there is a portal that can get you there. It's called the Wayback Machine, and it's not actually a machine at all, but a website running archival software that searches or crawls the internet in order to capture snapshots of a website's code at different times. It was started by a nonprofit called the Internet Archive in 1996. And the Wayback Machine has saved over 625 million web pages for posterity. So, for instance, if you wanted to see what BPL's first website was like in the time of Bill Gates's Libraries Online program, all you have to do is type in our very first web address, which was www.brooklynpubliclibrary.org into the Wayback Machine. We're actually going to put a link in our show notes. The Internet Archive works with other institutions and libraries like BPL through their community web program to find important and hyper-local web pages and gather them in one place. So it's now not just public libraries, but lots of different types of libraries. It's now international, not just the U.S., and um, the reason that the Internet Archive started this program was to try and capture more local corners of the web that the Wayback Machine might not be capturing. This is Diana Bauer-Smith, known as D, the Center for Brooklyn History's web archivist. We spoke with them about how web archiving broadens our understanding of what internet accessibility entails. D's goal is to make sure that we can still literally access older, less stable parts of the web. We've already had some websites that we've collected disappear from the live web. Um, if we hadn't captured them in our web archive, that content would be gone forever. The average life of a website is only 100 days. So even though the internet lets us create information at an unprecedented rate, we also lose information at an unprecedented rate. Dee has set up BPL's web archive to crawl local blogs, community board posts, and publications at scheduled times, roughly accumulating 500 megabytes of data a year. And the program adds metadata to the crawl so that patrons can search in a more robust way than they can in the Wayback Machine site and find more recent digital parts of Brooklyn history at the library. What we try to preserve at the Center for Brooklyn History is the story of every Brooklynite, basically. I know that sounds like a really 
big task and it is, but that's really, you know, what we're trying to do. So the more that people's stories and lives move online, the more that our collecting has to move online too. So we need to capture that if we want to preserve Brooklyn history going forward the way that we've been able to for the last century. It wouldn't be barred without a book match. We checked in with YA librarian Eric Horwitz for science fiction recommendations that have to do with the internet, librarianship, and archival loss. Take it away, Eric. Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, This uh, first one is a short story, uh, The Girl Who Is Plugged In, and it's from a collection of short stories by uh, James Tiptree Jr. That is the pseudonym of Alice Sheldon, who was a uh, pretty prolific science fiction writer. the uh, collection is called the uh, Her Smoke Rose Up Forever. Uh, the Girl Who Was Plugged In, it was written around the 70s, but I think it really does apply to a lot of issues of internet, of cyberspace, of identity. There's themes of uh, influencer culture. There's themes of catfishing, of all things. Uh, it sort of predicted all of these things. That's wild. She predicted modern internet culture. So what's your next book? Uh, we have Station Eleven. Um, that's by Emily St. John Mandel. It's about, uh, so it's the the apocalypse, right? But what uh, Station Eleven is interested in is how do we keep our humanity? How do we keep our culture? The book literally sort of elides questions of like, you know, oh, there are raiders or there are like there's violence or civilizational breakdown in favor of, well, we've lost our culture. You lose your history when everybody dies. You lose something about yourself. All the characters reflect back on things that they enjoyed, things that they liked, music, art you know, rock and roll, the jingle on a television set. Uh, and then they realize with the sinking feeling, oh, that's gone now. That's not here ever. They find an abandoned airport and they say, we're going to make this a museum of the before. And we're going to archive stuff that we remember from before it all got destroyed. And any prosaic thing they could find, a rotary telephone or just a regular dial telephone, a uh, stuffed Pikachu, is the most basic little thing can remind you of a life you had before and needs to be preserved. You have one more book for us, right? Yes, um, Amatka, it's Karen Tidbeck. It is a book about, uh, so they're on a planet and the key about this planet is that, uh, you know, for efficiency's sake, everything is made out, every, literally everything, food, your pencils, your furniture, your clothing, everything is made out of the same identical gray goop. There's something about the chemical property of the goop, it's psychoreactive. You have to will it into being. And every day you have to do the like identity ritual where you go up to things and go, this is a coffee, this is a jacket, this is bread. And you have to touch things and say, this is that. And as a result, everything is separated into categories. And the novel asks questions about, are these categories kind of limiting? Uh, and uh, chaos ensues when they some people decide maybe they want to call things different things. That was Girl Who Was Plugged In from the collection Her Smoke Rose Up Forever by James Tiptree Jr., Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, and Amatka by Karen Tidbeck. Thanks, Eric. You're welcome. Eric hosts a monthly science fiction book club at Clinton Hill Library, and we will put a link to that in our show notes. 
Borrowed is brought to you by Brooklyn Public Library and is hosted by me, Adra Duce, and Krista Corbett-Cavores. You can find a transcript of this episode as well as the full book match list on our website, vklynlibrary.org slash podcast. Borrowed is produced by Virginia Marshall with help from Fritzi Bodenheimer, Jennifer Prophet, and Robin Lester-Kenton. This episode was written by Virginia Marshall and Adwa Aduse. Our music composer is Billy Libby and Meryl Friedman designed our logo. Borrowed will be back next month. Until then, happy surfing. Happy surfing.